quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Testing times, the U.K. unveiling plans to exit lockdown. Smartphone surrender, LG closing its mobile business after years of losses. A monster mash, Godzilla and King Kong give Hollywood recovery hope. It's Monday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Great to have you with us this Monday, where Wall Street's rally is set to resume thanks to the March U.S. jobs boom and hopes for a U.S. infrastructure bloom and Tesla's Q1 sales vroom. Wow, can't believe I got that all out. Analyzing all of this for us, though, Mohamed el and the chief economic advisor at Allianz. We've also got the CEO of Verizon, Hans Vestberg, whose company will benefit if the U.S. goes big on infrastructure. Plus, Wedbush analyst Dan Ives, who says Tesla's delivery numbers represent a paradigm shift. We'll be explaining that, too. Now, at this hour, we're seeing a labor-led leap in stock futures. Friday's robust jobs number gains, giving investors confidence in the recovery. Remember, more than one million jobs recovered in the past several weeks, including those upward revisions for January and February. The bond market, though, having a say on this as well, with shorter-term bond yields like the five-year yield rising to more than one-year highs. Ten-year yields also ticking higher today, too. Once again, the question is whether the data justifies years of low rates. A lot, of course, depends on what happens in the rest of the world. And the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, set to raise its global growth target during the spring meetings this week. But expect to hear a lot, too, about a two-track recovery or multi-track recovery as countries struggle with vaccine rollouts and virus spikes and those nations lag behind. Some 650 million doses have been administered worldwide, but the EU, Brazil and India are still seeing infection spike. Indian stocks fell more than 1.7% today as their health crisis worsens. Reasons for caution layered with reasons for hope. Let's get to the drivers. The UK government unveiling its roadmap for the staggered reopening of the economy in just a few hours' time. At the heart of the strategy will be mass testing Everyone in England will be offered two rapid tests a week. Salma Abdelaziz joins us now. Salma, getting warmed up this Monday, clearly struggling there a little bit. Salma, talk us through the reopening plans and how this two rapid tests a week strategy was going to work. Morning, Julia. So Prime Minister Boris Johnson, as we speak probably, is meeting with cabinet officials trying to push through the next phase of this roadmap. And this is going to be a pretty detailed announcement that we're expecting tonight because there's a lot to go through. First, non-essential shops are expected to reopen on April 12th. That's next week. So you're going to see a a return of the economy in that sense. And yes, testing, that's a pretty critical line there. Up to two tests per week will be offered to all residents in England. You can have this delivered to your home or pick it up at your local pharmacy or you can... uh, 
go to a testing center and why is this well it comes down to the possibility that the government is trying to play a stick and carrot approach here and I say that because the other thing that's going to be announced is uh, what are essentially called vaccine passports the authorities here are calling a vaccine status certificate a document uh, which will allow you to enter potentially venues events they're gonna pilot this scheme this month it'll be a document on the phone or maybe a piece of paper and it'll have some few basic facts on it have you taken your vaccine yes or no uh, have you had a negative result uh, recently and have you had a positive result in the last few months that could give you natural immunity and with that bit of information authorities are hoping they can use it so that you can go to a sports match or go to a concert or a conference so they're going to be testing this out the first event is going to be a comedy night in Liverpool on April 16th we'll see how that all plays out in accordance with the testing and everything else but the UK really trying to figure out how to resume normal life what you do once you get on the other side of the mountain of coronavirus julia yeah it's approach new york's taking too so we're all looking forward to that here but it's interesting for an entire nation to be looking at um trying to tackle it this way what about international travel i know there's talk of a traffic light system based on level of vaccines and also level of virus are we likely to get any kind of concrete information over dates today selma that's a very key part. And I'll tell you, I personally am very excited because many people here have simply not been allowed to travel to go on any holidays, any vacations. Now that could potentially resume on May 17th. But as you said, it's still going to be strict. There's going to be a traffic light system. So countries will fall under one of three categories. Green countries, you can travel, no quarantine, nothing required. If it's amber, that means you can go, but you have to self-isolate upon return. A red country means you have to agree to a government quarantine in a hotel. But here's what we won't find find out today. We won't know which which countries fall under which categories. That's going to have to be a sort of of the moment decision if you will based on numbers, based on figures inside of those countries. But the start here, the beginning here of inter tra international travel resuming, which of course is something that everybody is desperate to find out more about, but still nobody ready to book their holidays because we just don't know which countries are going to fall under which categories, Julia. Yeah, it sort of suggests late booking, doesn't it, rather than booking ahead and then you just have to sort of take your chance based on what the situation is when you actually travel. It's going to be fascinating to see. Salma, great to have you with us. Salma Abdelaziz there. All right, let's move on. Calling it quits. LG hanging up its mobile phone business, saying the competition in the market is too intense. Selena Wang is on the story for us. Selena, this is an interesting one because it's been rumoured for a while. They've been squeezed at the top end by the likes of Samsung and Apple, squeezed at the bottom end by Chinese competition. And now they're saying we give up. Julia, that's exactly right. This has been a long-awaited move. You have LG now finally saying it is giving up on this mobile phone unit. The company says that it's going to complete this wind-out by the end of July. And this move, as you say, it does not come as a surprise because LG has been struggling against the competition for years. But this once was considered a leading innovator in this market for a long time. It was one of the top three global smart makers. It had pioneered the Android operating system, working with Google for this Nexus phone brand. In the early days, its display and its cameras were considered some of the best on the market. But as the smartphone industry became more crowded and more saturated, it just couldn't keep 
up. On the low end, you had cheaper Chinese smartphone brands coming in. You had Huawei, Xiaomi, Oppo, Vivo. Then on the high end, they were losing out to the likes of Apple and Samsung. And this business as well, over the past five years, it lost around $4.5 billion, and it, its market share had dropped to about 2%. This is according to CounterPoint Research. So for quite a while, investors have been waiting for some major shakeup in this business unit, either a sale or a downsizing or potentially a complete withdrawal from the market, which is what we see the company has ultimately decided on. Julia. So very quickly, what happens if you've got an LG phone? Are they going to continue to service that to help you with that phone? And what is the focus going to be going forward? Now, the company says that it is going to continue to meet supplies until May. It is going to continue with the warranty there as well. In terms of its shifting focus, the company says that this exit is going to allow it to focus on growth areas. So that would be electric vehicles, smart homes, robotics, artificial intelligence. This mobile unit was about 8% of revenue last year, so it is expected to have a dent on sales in the short term. But the company says in the long term, it's going to be beneficial for, for financials. Now, when it comes to this vehicle component, area, this is expected to be a major focus for LG. They've been investing, expanding in this area. It recently set up a JV with Magnus International to make components for electric vehicles. And Julia, there have been other bright spots for LG as well. They had soaring demand for their home appliances and TVs during the pandemic. So really, when we look at this saga with LG, the bottom line here is that in this smartphone business, unless you are the top maker, it is incredibly difficult to sustain yourself, to be profitable. So LG decided to just cut their losses and focus on more promising areas. Julia. Absolutely. And it literally is cutting your losses because it takes a bite out of revenues. But if you can draw a line under those losses, then it helps the financials in the end. Selena Wang, great job. Thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on. In a historic cybersecurity breach now, the personal information of more than half a billion Facebook users has been found online, including phone numbers, email addresses and locations. Now, Facebook says it's old data. It was already reported stolen back in 2019 and that the issue was fixed back then. Hmm, Donia Sullivan has more. So hackers in this case, apparently back in 2019, were able to exploit a flaw in Facebook systems where they were able to match phone numbers of apparently hundreds of millions of Facebook users with their Facebook accounts. Now, what that has now resulted in is someone has posted on a hacking forum the details, we're told, of 500 million, half a billion Facebook accounts, phone numbers, email addresses, where people live, people's names. Uh, all of this information really a tre- treasure trove for cyber criminals who might want to engage in identity theft. Breakdown of the numbers by country, we see 32 million accounts uh, in the US, 11 million in the UK, 28 million in Saudi Arabia, and hundreds of millions more around uh, the world. Facebook says it has fixed that flaw. Uh, that They said they actually fixed the flaw back in 2019. Obviously, this data is still out there. Uh, we asked the company if they are going to tell users, if they're going to tell people uh, who have been affected by this that their information is out there, they said no comment at the moment. Uh, one thing I should also mention is we were speaking to a cybersecurity expert who now has access uh, to this data, and he was able to quickly pull up the details of two of our CNN colleagues. So a lot of people impacted by this. 
Donny O'Sullivan there. Okay, let's move on. An oversized ape and a radioactive lizard have come to the rescue of the US movie industry. Perhaps Godzilla vs. Kong just had its biggest opening weekend of the pandemic so far. Still, the numbers are nowhere near what you would have expected, of course, pre-COVID. Paula Monica joins me now. Paul, and you watched it. So you can give us your view without giving away any of the endings and a a tease only. But this is no spoiler alert. Exactly. (laughs) No spoilers. Paul, talk us through the numbers. Yeah, 48 and a half million uh, for the five day holiday weekend, which, as you point out, that is not something that in the pre pandemic era would have lit up the uh, headlines for being great numbers. It would have been okay, probably considered a disappointment, to be honest. But 48 and a half million, given that a lot of people are still a little wary of going to theaters is a very strong number, 32 million over the three days, um, you know, Friday to Sunday. And what makes it even more impressive, obviously this is a, you know, part of the HBO Max strategy, HBO Max owned by Warner Media, CNN's parent, to have movies come out in theaters, but also be available for streaming on the HBO Max service. So full disclosure, my son and I did not go to a theater to watch this movie. We watched it at home, so we don't count in that $48.5 million number. But a lot of people obviously felt that they wanted the big screen, life-sized adventure with this popcorn flick, because this is your classic summer movie coming, uh, albeit in early April, uh, you know, a very, very healthy debut and much better than some of the other HBO movie, uh, HBO Max movies, Warner Brother movies that came out earlier this year, like Wonder Woman 1984 and Tom and Jerry. So I think it's an encouraging sign for the studios and the theater companies. Yeah. And in the United States, the majority now cinemas open, but they're still running capacity somewhere between 25 percent and 50 percent in certain cases, too. And I think also to your point about the fact that it's streamed instantly as well with HBO Max, you don't even have to pay extra. That was the big decision. They said you pay your subscription, you get access to the movies at the same time um, as the cinema. So it's going to be interesting to see. Paul, the international viewings on this and the money that was drawn as well. Interesting to me, particularly in China, where there's been this preference for local movies more recently. And even these guys were going to watch this movie, too. Yeah, I think that when you look at these two characters, Godzilla and King Kong, they are iconic. They have a global following. This didn't seem to be probably that tough a sell to international audiences, as well as obviously domestic audiences in the United States to see this movie. I mean, you have a history with these two characters and going toe to toe. I mean, it, it was a fun popcorn summer movie. I mean, they're, they're, we needed at a time like this to just sit back and relax and have this escapism, you know, nothing to worry about, about a COVID-19 in this movie. It's all just about whether or not a monster is going to knock down the office building you happen to be in. <laughs> cinematic comfort food that that's exactly. what this is i have to say I, I don't know i'm not sure i'm gonna watch it but i get all the points you make <laughs> monica thank you so much for that all right let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that are making headlines around the world a worrying milestone for india in the covid19 pandemic the highest one day tally of new coronavirus cases more than 100,000 cases registered on monday as Vidika Sood reports, a new wave of infections is threatening to spin out of control. 
A record surge in COVID-19 cases in Mumbai has turned this parking lot into a 400-bed makeshift hospital. India's richest state, Maharashtra, which includes Mumbai, reported more than 57,000 new infections Sunday. With cases rising, the state government has imposed night curfew and complete lockdown on weekends through the end of the month. We know that there are a large crowding which occurs in certain cities in Maharashtra, for example, Mumbai. Uh, Mumbai being the industrial capital and a lot of uh, movement of people happens in that uh, uh, state, not only from India but from outside also. And with crowding uh, and total lack of COVID-appropriate behavior, this actually is a classical uh, case for the infection to spread. The health ministry says the situation across India is worrying. The situation is becoming from bad to worse and this is serious cause for concern. In some states in particular, uh, there is a huge cause for worry. India reported over 100,000 new cases Monday, surpassing its all-time daily high of almost 98,000 new infections in mid-September last year. The first wave happened under a significantly stringent lockdown. Right now, much of the economy is open, people are moving around, transportation is open. So it's only natural that we will see a much uh, sharper and steeper rise in cases. While the government has repeatedly urged citizens to wear masks and social distance, politicians have been busy addressing thousands of supporters in poll-bound states. That's not the only cause for concern. One of the world's biggest festivals, Komela, is taking place in India's northern state of Uttarakhand. Tens of millions of devotees are expected to attend the event in the month of April. Any event where you have a large number of cases, uh, a number of people coming together and uh, when uh, in such an event there is no COVID appropriate behavior, people are not wearing masks, can become super spreading events. 11 states and union territories have been categorized as states of grave concern by the Indian government. With the daily surge in COVID-19 cases, expect more partial lockdowns in the coming days. Vidika Sood, CNN, New Delhi. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu appeared in court in Jerusalem today for the opening of his trial on corruption charges. Prosecutors say he abused government power to advance his own interests, calling it a, quote, serious and significant case. Prime Minister Netanyahu has denied all wrongdoing. OK, so to come here on First Move, electric stock. Tesla shares look set to soar after deliveries beat forecasts. And Verizon's new port of call, the American telco, nets its first 5G deal in Europe. We're joined by the CEO. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where U.S. markets are set to take a post-Easter leap. Higher as investors react to Friday's strong U.S. jobs report, the S&P 500 set to hit fresh records after closing above the 4,000 milestone for the first time on Thursday. Stocks advancing even as the retail crowd pulls back on investments with activity on the Robinhood app reportedly down by over half in recent weeks. GameStop also down by uh, over 9% pre-market after announcing plans to sell more than 3 million new shares raising money. GameStop down around half two from its January peak. Now, speaking of losses, investors are waiting updates this week from Credit Suisse on the damage done to its bottom line due to its relationship with US-based investment fund Archegas Capital. 
the collapse of Archegos, raising uneasy questions about how excess liquidity is fueling risky market bets from investors desperate to find returns. Joining us now, Mohamed Alirian, the Chief Economic Advisor at Allianz and the President of Queen's College at Cambridge University. Mohamed, always fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin with the jobs numbers. Your take on what we're seeing there. It was a very strong report, Julie, mm. and thank you for having me. We had massive job creation. We have more hours worked, and importantly, it was non-inflationary. And that's why the market likes it so much. The market is looking for a transition from liquidity-powered gains to gains powered by fundamentals, and it got some indications of that last Friday. The bond market and bond market investors also reacted too. If you look at the two-year part of the interest rate curve, the five-year part, again, we're starting to see yields climb higher. I think at this stage, the uh, market is predicting the Fed will be raising rates by December of next year. That's far earlier than the Federal Reserve is saying it. Bond market investors are testing the Fed once again. Yes, they are. And that is the big issue out there, is that the marketplace believes that at some point the Fed is going to have to move earlier than what it has indicated. And the Fed gives no indication of wanting to do that. So we're going to see that play out. But importantly, it's a well-behaved bond market. Mm. And early in the year, we were worried about a misbehaved bond market. So on the whole, investors are relatively sanguine because it is very calm in the, in the bond market so far. I don't think that's going to last, but that's what investors are seeing so far. How long can it last? Because the Fed can hold firm and continue to say rising yields is a sign of positive economic momentum that we continue to recover at the point where it's no longer orderly, to your point, then they have a problem. How long does the calm last? So it can last a while, but you noted earlier when you were talking about what happened with the hedge fund, but also Mm. we saw that earlier with Robinhood. We've had three near liquidity accidents this year so far. And that's something to keep an eye on. The problem with maintaining such loose monetary policy with liquidity sloshing around the system is it encourages excessive and irresponsible risk taking in some places. So that's the big question. Do we have more near accident and an actual accident or do we have a smooth handoff? I think you- it's, it's, it's pretty likely we will have some near accidents, if not an accident. But you think the Fed only adjusts when we see an actual accident versus uh, a numerous near misses? Yes, they've signaled very clearly they're no longer in the business of being mm. proactive. They're going to respond. And that's a big change. You know, last time we spoke, you said something that I've been desperate to follow up on. We were talking about companies like Tesla adding Bitcoin to the balance sheet or cryptocurrencies to the balance sheet. And you said to me, um, You think that we see more companies doing this because they don't know how else to mitigate risk. And I was desperate to follow up and we were we were running out of time. Can you expand upon that conversation? Because it's very much tied, I think, to the conversation that we're having now. Oh, absolutely. The problem of repressing the asset markets too much is that you caused massive distortion. So the Fed has understandably wanted interest rates to be very low. Now, if you're an investor, government bonds are your safe asset. Government bonds is how you diversify away from equity. But if the price of government bonds is artificial as it is today, it's too high, 
you, 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 this is no longer a risk mitigator for you. So you look elsewhere. Normally you would look to gold, but there are issues with the gold market. So a lot more people have gone into Bitcoins as their risk mitigator, which sounds absurd because Bitcoins are incredibly volatile. But this is a situation where it, it is, in the eyes of some investors, the least bad asset to use. And that's, that's just an indication of the distortions we're having in the marketplace because of this massive intervention of central banks. What is it in your eyes, Mohammed? Is it an appropriate investment approach? As you said, it's the least bad option in a battle of the uglies, it seems. Is this a, an appropriate investment choice to be making at this moment when you have no other choices? So if you're making it, it's because you believe that private sector adoption is going to continue, which I think is the right thing to believe. But also you believe that governments are not going to interfere with this. That I'm not too sure about. So I tend to tell people, be really careful. This is an asset that wants to establish itself, but it can only establish itself if governments allow it to. And it takes away a lot from governments. It takes away what is called seniorage, the ability to provide currency and benefit from that. So, so I tell people, be cautious, because not only are you assuming on private sector adoption, but you're also assuming on government tolerance. And that second one, I'm not so sure about. I was having the debate last week that whether or not Bitcoin is too big to fail and whether or not it is, governments could still step in and say to regulated companies in, t in particular, we want you to stay away from this. Your view on both of those things, too big to fail and the likelihood of regulators saying, I'm sorry, we don't want you involved in this. It's still too risky at this stage. So from a narrow perspective, it's not too big to fail. From a broader perspective, that would be another challenge to the liquidity paradigm where investors simply bet on liquidity. Um, and as I said earlier, we've already had three near accidents. So you've got to be careful. You never know which little fender bender is going to cause a pile up on the highway. <laughs> and that's what you've got to be careful about. You know, one of the other things that people are pointing out at this stage and crypto enthusiasts, but it also ties to the point we were making about the jobs numbers not being so inflationary. And that was the wage component is the money supply growth that we're seeing, record money supply growth. And I'm looking specifically at what we call M2, increasing 27% year on year in the February numbers. It was almost as high in the previous month. Mohammed, when this is used as an excuse or a reason for investing in cryptocurrencies, what do you make of it? And how should we as ordinary investors or ordinary individuals be looking at specifically that number as justification? So remember, you have three types of investors in cryptocurrency. You, do, you have those who do it for defensive reasons, and we talked about that. You have those who do it for speculative reasons, but also you have those who truly believe that we are debasing currencies because of money supply growth. So they're doing it for a positive reason. They're embracing something that cannot be debased. So the more money supply growth you're going to see, the more that's going to push people into the currency. The, the problem with the money supply growth is that it made sense when the U.S. economy was facing headwinds. Now the U.S. economy has massive tailwinds, and yet we continue to grow the money supply at these incredible levels. And that's why people are starting to say, hey, wait a minute, shouldn't the Fed be slowly taking its foot off the accelerator? Yeah, it's um, a whirlwind, and the Fed's at the center of it, having to make some incredibly tough decisions. 
Mohammed, great to have your perspective as always. Mohammed Alirian, Chief Economic Advisor at Alliance and President of Queen's College at Cambridge University. Great to have you with us as always. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Wall Street is open for business after the long holiday weekend, and we have a fresh record high for the S&P 500 right out of the gate as markets applaud concrete signs that the U.S. jobs market is on the bend. The next catalyst for stocks could be upcoming corporate earnings and the prospects for President Biden's more than $2 trillion infrastructure spending bill. Republicans now saying they might agree to a more pared-back bill. Amazon, meanwhile, opening flat as investors await the outcome of a a historic vote by workers in Alabama over whether to unionize the company being dragged into an embarrassing public back and forth the past few days over whether its staff get appropriate bathroom breaks. As you can see right now, the stock higher by some four tenths of one percent. Meanwhile, Tesla shares surging after the EV maker posted record deliveries of over 185,000 cars in the first quarter of 2021 and said demand was strong, including in China. My next guest says the results are a paradigm shift. Joining us now is Dan Ives. He's managing director of equity research at Wedbush Securities. Dan, great to have you with us. Explain what you mean, a paradigm shift. Yeah, right now, I mean, there's a green tidal wave going on, not just in China, but we've even seen it domestically and in Europe. And, and Tesla, you look at these delivery numbers, just given the chip shortage supply issues, whisper numbers were about 10% lower. I mean, so this is really what I view as a game changer, not just in terms of showing where demand is, but the trajectory for the rest of the year and going into the next few years. And I think this is one, it's been a painful sell-off, but I see a $1,000 stock in the next 12 months. We'll come back to that, Dan, because I want to unpick some of what we saw in the results. And one of the things I mentioned there in the introduction, because it felt very important, was China and demand in China, particularly in light of recent headlines, the concerns over whether the cars have been suspended for purchases by government workers over fears of spying. And this is a pivotal market for Tesla, as you and I have discussed many times. How worried are you by some of the headlines that you've seen there about impact perhaps on future demand? Yeah, and you hit on a great point. I mean, China, that's that's the core linchpin to the bull thesis. We know that's about 40% overall deliveries for Tesla for next year. So given some of that noise, given the U.S.-China cold tech war, it's not just Apple, Tesla caught in the middle. So when you look at these delivery numbers, I mean, China really, we're seeing skyrocketing growth on the EV front, not just from domestic players. I think Tesla more and more is gaining share there. You combine that with what we're seeing in Europe and the U.S., and I think this is really just the start, this next leg of the EV story uh, going forward. Let's talk about the U.S. and a potential green catalyst, too, because we have Biden's, President Biden's infrastructure bill where a huge focus is on uh, cleaner energy, electric vehicles, boosting charging capacity, for example, too. Buried within this, and this is something that you believe is an underestimated positive catalyst for the stock, the removal of the ceiling, which Tesla obviously now has um, hit, which is the $7,500 tax credit for buying an electric vehicle. You think that ceiling gets removed? Yeah, that's the paradigm changer. I mean, of course, last week, Biden kept getting off this EV green tidal wave. But it comes down to right now, GM... Tesla, 200,000 ceiling in terms of units they hit. 
So you buy those cars, you don't get a tax credit. We believe based on our contacts in the Beltway, that ceiling gets removed. So credits get restored to Tesla and GM, as well as we hear and we believe the 7,500 credit could potentially go to 10,000. And I think wow. that's significant in terms of catalyzing green growth in terms of from price parity. And I think Tesla, take a step back. I mean, U.S. is 2% of EVs in, in terms of EVs as a percent of auto compared to China, 4.5%, and Europe more than that. U.S. has lagged. I believe the green tidal wave gets kicked off now and Tesla front and center. It's such a tiny fraction of the market EVs. I think we have to remember this. I mean, we've again, we've talked in the past about competition being one of the biggest risks. And I believe Tesla's around 80 percent. It's got 80 percent market share in the United States. You know, we recently spoke to Volkswagen and the CEO was talking about their massive investment in electric vehicle capacity, charging capacity, for example, and saying, you look, it's game on versus Tesla at this stage. Do we need to stop thinking about the EV market as a zero sum game? All of these can continue to compete in the market and expand. Even if Tesla's market share narrows, it can still sell more cars because the market at this stage is so tiny and will grow. It's an, it's a key point. And, and it's really the most important point if there's any takeaway. We're talking about a $5 trillion market over the next decade. We're still in that early part of it. There's going to be many winners, many boats that could fit in the ocean. You look at VW. I believe they're going to have massive success. We also view them as a potential partner with the Apple car. Look what's happened to GM domestically. And I think this is just starting off. And that's why these automakers, you see what's happened to GM stock, they're not treated as automakers in the market. They're treated as disruptive technology vendors. And I think that's what we're seeing when you take a step back on these delivery numbers. It shows that massive pent-up demand just starting to take hold despite noise and the chip shortage. Yeah, I was about to say there will be some uh, traditional investors eye rolling there with your comment over uh, automakers versus disruptive sure. technology um, creators. But that's what makes markets. So is that the point? And it ties to why the market's been so beaten up. And I guess, Dan, you're going to argue it's a buying opportunity because I know you've raised your target price on on Tesla, too. Yeah, because I think part of it is that it's viewed competition. Mm-hmm. You're starting to see boom come off the rose and some of these traditional EV players. I believe this is just a speed bump in terms of where it broadly goes in terms of the $5 trillion market and this green tidal wave globally in terms of playing. The ecosystem is being built in front of our eyes, not just globally, but domestically. Yeah, and charging capabilities. I mean, VW, they said those charging facilities can be used by anybody. Another game changer going forward too. Dan, always great to get your perspective. Thank you. Managing Director of Equity Research at Wedbush Securities. All right, coming up after the break, Verizon arrives in the UK. Hans Vesberg joins us as the company celebrates a 5G deal at the English port of Southampton. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. From auction houses to basketball courts, digital artists like Beeple to people like you or me. It seems wherever you look, NFTs are the hottest ticket in town But for all the buzz right now, there are worries that these new kids on the blockchain could end up as one-hit wonders if the boom turns to bust. Claire Sebastian explores the crypto craze. This is not just a 12-second clip of basketball star LeBron James. It's a potential slam-dunk investment. I purchased that in October for about $3,200 at the time. 
and a different version of that same moment sold for two hundred and eight thousand uh, dollars just a few weeks back. Financial analyst Michael Levy has been investing in NFTs or non-fungible tokens for about seven months, focusing mainly on NBA Top Shot, a collaboration between the National Basketball Association and blockchain company Dapper Labs. In the case of the LeBron moment, the NFT is a digital certificate of ownership linked to the clip. NFTs can prove ownership of anything, GIFs, digital artworks, even a virtual house. The point is each NFT is unique and therefore collectible, a bit like a physical basketball card. Levy has so far spent $175,000 on Top Shot moments. He now estimates his collection to be worth more than $15 million. It's an 100x return in, in six months. It's something that you can't find without going through a ton of risk and taking on um, you know, a level of speculation that probably isn't the smartest move for most people. I think that the NFT space as a whole could definitely be considered a bubble. The message, whatever your online collectible of choice, this is a wild west. And investors need to tread carefully. The problem is, just like the pioneers in the movie How the West Was Won, most, it seems, are not being careful. NFTs have created a race to colonize the internet. An endless caravan of buyers and sellers sending valuations skyrocketing. 69 million. And because NFTs are stored on the blockchain, anonymous decentralized databases, and often paid for using cryptocurrencies, there's no sheriff in this town. We don't know how many of the transactions are even legitimate because uh, somebody could easily be selling to themselves or selling to a friend and selling back and forth. And there's at least indications that a lot of the trades are what we'd call wash trades in the stock industry. Analysts at nonfungible.com, a website aiming to provide third-party data on the NFT space, say they are seeing just that. This is an example of an artwork that was sold between the same two accounts five times in an hour last July, rapidly inflating the value to over three and a half thousand dollars. You do see it pop up periodically. Hey, you know, we're all going to invest in this new unproven token and let's all tweet about it or let's all put out blogs about it and, and then we'll, we'll sell it. It's clear in this new digital gold rush, all that glitters is not necessarily a good investment. La Sebastian, CNN, New York. I wonder what the uh, capital gains tax is on an asset that you've bought and sold to yourself to inflate the price. Just saying. We're back after this. There's more to come. Welcome back to First Move. The latest overseas import to arrive at Southampton Docks in England is the U.S. telecoms giant Verizon. The company is a household name here in the United States, but it's relatively unknown in the U.K. Verizon will build a private high-speed 5G network within the port, which is a major point of entry for goods coming into Britain. Hans Vesberg is CEO of Verizon, and he joins us now. Hans, congratulations on the deal. I'm sure there's plenty of European telcos that have liked to have been in charge of this. What's it going to mean in practice? 
In practice, it means that we have been on to this 5G mobile edge compute for some uh, one and a half to two years. We have the only commercial sort of 5G mobile edge compute here in the US. Now we see this also uh, spreading the rest of the world, where we do private 5G network. We basically do a, a network that is, is secluded for that uh, operator, for that enterprise, in order for them to have low latency uh, enterprise application that needs real time for taking decisions. And this is what we're doing with the port authorities here uh, and, uh, and the offering we're doing. So we are bringing our know-how and how we have built this uh, together with partners in the UK. So uh, we, we are, of course, globally, but our consumer brand is only in the US. That's why we are not equally known uh, in places like UK. Yes, important point to make. How quickly can this be up and running? And I know you were looking at you know, opportunities across Europe and Asia Pacific as well. How quickly can you start to build these kind of deals and expand further? I think that this is now going fast. We have been uh, having a funnel of a lot of trials and tests with customers uh, across Europe and Asia. And of course, here in the US, we have a, a lot as well. And now we start, we can start replicating them. And, and that's what we're out to do. And with partners uh, that also have applications, because sometimes you need an application that can do all this control of different type of devices or boats or whatever it might be in that uh, sort of secluded 5G private network. So I think this can scale very fast. And as we said when we had our investor day uh, mm. a couple of weeks ago, we believe this in a couple of years will be a $10 billion business. And so far, we are the only carrier in the world that has commercial solutions for this at this moment. You know, if I bring it closer to home as well, and we talk about more broadly about 5G rollout, you also said on the investor day that your expectation is by 2023, 55% of your postpaid customers will have a 5G phone. It's around 9% at the end of, of 2020. Just in terms of the shift that we're seeing from sort of 4G to 5G capabilities, never mind rollout, it seems to be far quicker than the shift when we went from sort of 3G capabilities to 4G. Am I correct in that respect? Julia, you're absolutely correct. Uh, that's what we've seen between all the Gs, 1G to 2G, 2G to 3G, 3G to 4G and 4G to 5G. It's always been faster to the next G. And that's the same thing here. We're actually quicker deploying 5G and uh, the uptake from consumers is also quicker on 5G devices. But the difference with 5G that we also have enterprise solutions and we have home solutions on 5G. And that has never happened before that we have three different use cases on the same technology only we're deploying and that's of course the excitement around 5G because there's so many different capabilities of 5G that we didn't have on previous wireless technologies. Everything from low latencies, enormous throughputs, uh, uh, reduced battery consumptions and so that, that's, that's part of it. Okay let's talk about Biden's infrastructure bill as well. A significant chunk of this is technology. We've talked in the past about the need for, even if we just stay in the United States here, greater, more fair and even distribution of broadband 5G access. Hans, what do you make of this plan? And is there anything missing that you think actually we need to be seeing more focus on? What we have seen the last 12 months in this pandemic is, of course, a, a leapfrog five to seven years how to right. use uh, technology. Everything from home, uh, remote from homework, education, uh, telehealth and everything like that. So, of course, when you see that leapfrog, technology is not catching up. And that doesn't really matter where you are in the world. It's the same. That, of course, shows that uh, infrastructure is the uh, or mobile, uh, mobility, broadband and cloud is the 21st century 
centers infrastructure. So, of course, it's very important to deploy this. But what I think is important is to think about accessibility of it, affordability and usability. That all three needs to play in order for you to actually have this digital divide closed, meaning access to broadband, but also you can afford it. And finally, usability, applications that are useful, like uh, remote learning, etc. And that has to come together when you think about this type of, of, of uh, infrastructure bills. Is the government thinking like that, Hans? I mean, you're clearly having conversations with them. I hope they're asking your advice. <laughs> I, I, of course, have been working with the BRT, where I'm on the infrastructure committee. Uh, we, are to, we, we are giving them all the advice we have seen. I mean, one thing we have to be very clear, the networks in the US, they performed extremely well during the pandemic compared to other regions where they actually had to decide to take down applications. And I'm, right. I'm proud of us and the, the whole industry that have been doing this. So hopefully they are listening to that and understanding how they have been catering for this where we are right now. I mean, we talked about it. You had to ramp up CapEx because you initially saw with a boost in streaming, with the wireless networks, um, immediate stress on the network that you had to manage and, and clearly did. What are you seeing today as we enter a phase of recovery and greater proliferation of things like vaccines? Are you seeing a shift back to urban environments, to less streaming? Just give us a sense of what your data is, is telling us about the recovery. Just to confirm, yes, we increased our CAPEX as the pan pandemic started because we didn't know what would happen. But uh, uh, honestly, our networks were performing well without that CAPEX. But we want to do it for a precaution. If I look today, we see clearly a, a shift back to urban areas. Remember, during some time, the handovers in the mobile networks were down 50, 60 percent, meaning people didn't move. We're seeing that coming back right now. We see also less of streaming and gaming, uh, but we still see a lot of video collaboration uh, across the border. And I think that many companies like Verizon still are sort of uh, doing a lot on video with our employees. So uh, that we still see there. Uh, we still see a lot of normal communication, phone calls, text messages being on a high peak. I'm glad that that makes me normal. Hans Westberg, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for the update and congratulations. <laughs> normal. On the, on the deal. The CEO of Verizon there. We'll speak soon. All right, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will, make, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is back up next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.